morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Micah. Not Matthew, but the book of Micah, the Old Testament, minor prophet Micah. So we're in this series, we're in this Advent season entitled Long Expected Jesus. We're looking back at that prophetic wisdom of the Old Testament, looking forward to that first Advent. We also look back to celebrate what God did in the sending of His Son, and we look forward to the second Advent when He would send His Son, not as a babe in the manger, but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If I was sitting in your place, I would do this. I would turn to the table of contents to figure out where Michael was. Micah's not a book in, in, in my own ministry that, that I go to often. I've never uh, had someone come to me before a service or after a service and say, I want you to preach a series of sermons on my favorite book of the Bible, the book of Micah. No one has ever told me that in 16 years of ministry. So it is a shame-free zone if you need to go and see in your Bible what page it's on. You grab the Pew Bible in front of you, because you'll need the Bible, you'll need it to be open, you're going to turn to page 776 this morning. 776, if you're flipping through your Bible to get to Micah, you get to Jonah, and then before Nahum, and we have Micah there nestled between Jonah and Nahum. You get to Habakkuk, go back to the left, go back to the left, and then you're going you're gonna to find Micah there. Uh, Micah's an 8th century B.C. prophet. 8th century prophet, prophesying both to the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. He has a message that's unique. It's a message, ultimately, of God's judgment upon the people of God. He, Micah, was from a small town, 21 miles outside of Jerusalem. You know folks that say, where are you from? And you say, I'm from the country. I mean, he, he was from the far country. He, he had no credibility. He wasn't a priest from Jerusalem with a script from God coming. He, he had no one that would believe anything from him except that the authorization of the God who spoke to him and through him. That's his credibility. That's his calling, the calling of Micah. Now, what I want you to see in the midst of this book, this prophecy of Micah, Micah is I want you to see this third Sunday of Advent, the hope that is found in the midst of God's loving discipline for his children. I want you to see that truth, but I also want you to see, uh, secondly this morning, the hope that is found in God's future promise. Both of these truths are here embedded in this 8th century prophet. So let's look at the first, the hope found in God's loving discipline. Micah is the mouthpiece of God, saying, according to chapter 3, verse 8, that there is a lawsuit that God is bringing against his people. What are the charges, you might ask? Well, the charges are corruption, corruption all around. In, in Samaria, the capital of Israel, in Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the poor are being abused. Their property is being seized through corrupt business practices and bribes that are taken by the legal authorities of that day. Idolatry, the worship of foreign gods, is rampant in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So here are people of God whose charges are corruption. They've left the God. They called them out of Egypt. They, they are not worshiping purely that God. So God says through Micah, here are the charges and here's the sentence. The sentence is 
ultimately the destruction of Samaria in 722 BC through that bloodthirsty foreign nation of the Assyrians. Also, Micah predicts in 586 BC that, that Jerusalem too would fall and that God's people would go into exile. So you have this unique prophet speaking both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, bringing God's charge, bringing God's sentence, and you get just a taste. Just a taste of God's word through the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 2. Just hear the first three verses. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Woe to those. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Before they sleep. Before they get up. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They have the ability to do this. What do they do? They covet fields. Verse 2, they seize them and houses. They take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold against this family, God's family, God's people, I am devising disaster. I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. God, speaking through the prophet Micah, in verse 3, says that he, God, has the authority to devise disaster against his people. The disaster that the Lord speaks of is, again, the the fall of Israel, the fall of, of Judah. The capture of Samaria, the capture of Jerusalem here. These are God's words, which are true words, but they're hard words. It's a reminder from the Old Testament that the prophet of God was not called to be the co-author of God's words. It it wasn't that God said, Michael, what do you think I need to tell these people? Help me along here. God writes the script. Micah is faithful to deliver God's words to his people. Now, there are words that are unique. They were unique in the 8th century. They were unique in our century. I, I would say they're for all practical purposes, wholly absent, even within the, the larger evangelical world of Christianity in, in North America. I mean, I mean who, who wants to hear about the discipline of God, the judgment of God, the punishment of God? These, these aren't subjects that, that any preacher runs to. I don't run to this. I, I wouldn't talk about this whatsoever if it wasn't in God's Word. But I, like Micah, have, have, have a message that is before me, have a script that has been delivered. I don't choose the script. I'm just called to preach what has been given. And I think it's helpful. It, it, it's helpful to understand maybe a, a little bit of how God is relating to his children. We don't perfectly see this, this side of heaven, But any of you in this room that have raised children, any of you in this room that are raising children, understand that you don't have to take them to college at the age of one and a half or two years old and and have them under a tutor to sin. They don't have to learn that from someone else. They're hardwired with that. So one of the roles of a parent is to do what? Out of love for their children, is to discipline their children. Disciplining one's children is, is, is an act of love because we understand that we, we do no favors to our children when we as parents who have that formative influence upon them just ignore their blatant disobedience. That, that's not helpful for them 
now, and it certainly won't be helpful for them in their future. So, so a part of the care and the love that God calls each mom and each dad to, to do is to, to be a person as a parent who, who executes discipline in a way that is restorative for their children. So Danielle and I have three boys. We certainly are not experts by any stretch of the imagination on this, but we've had 14 years of raising our children. And in 14 years of raising our children, there are times that we have to sit them down and say, we're taking this away from you for a season. This is what we are going to do as a form of punishment for you. And, and oftentimes we say this, boys, the only reason we're doing this is because we love you. Now, I don't know, I don't know what you're doing as a parent, but I've never had one of my kids, when I, when I profess that my motivation is love, I've never had one of my sons that have looked at me and said, Oh, dear father, I receive, I receive your loving discipline once again as an assurance of your steadfast love for me. I mean, they never look at, they don't understand that. I can say it all I want to, but they don't receive it like that. At times, I, I don't offer discipline person perfectly. They certainly don't receive it perfectly. Somebody came up to me after the first service and said, uh, maybe one day they'll, they'll understand it. Uh, my, uh, 40 years down the road, they finally figured it out. So maybe it'll take 40 years. I don't know. But, but we as, as children cannot understand perfectly the, the understanding of what a parent must do. Discipline is never, it's never the final destination but it's always a means. It's always a means to correction. It's always a means to, to bring us into the right way and the right path. That's always and should always be, at least let me say that, it should always be the goal of discipline of a parent. And so God's love, it is perfect. God's fatherly care for his children is perfect. We don't have to doubt that. His word tells us. And so while we get a glimpse of this in the imperfection of our earthly parenting, so God, as a perfect parent, he executes discipline for us. And the writer of Hebrews, he draws upon this image in Hebrews chapter 12, which we should always read in conjunction with the prophets. Hebrews chapter 12 says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he... Do you see that word? You see it on the screen? He disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. So, so Micah is, is offering a message of discipline. He's offering a message saying that God is going to use foreign nations as tools of discipline. Now, in our life, what does God use as tools of discipline? Well, he has an array. There's no denying that. But oftentimes, it's the consequences of our sin. You had that happen in your life? Certainly all of us, in some respects, have had that happen where the, the natural consequences of our sin, it brings us into a moment of trial, and it's in that trial that God gets our attention. It's in that trial that God breaks us, and it's in that trial that God brings us to our knees. And his desire is always where we as his children are in a foreign land. And he allows the discipline of the Lord to, to bring us to that pigsty of consequences so that we would come to our senses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and be brought from that foreign land in repentance back home to a heavenly Father who does what? Doesn't say, I wondered when you were going to come home. 
You're not welcome here. No, he is a heavenly father who greets us with an embrace. And so for any of us that are in this room who are living in that place of disobedience for the Lord, his discipline is always a discipline that brings us to his home. It's always his goal. So always remember, always remember what God allows in our life. He always uses for your ultimate good and his infinite glory. Always remember what God allows in your life. He always uses for our ultimate good and your, his, excuse me, infinite glory. So don't lose hope. Don't lose hope because his motivation for us in every circumstance is his perfect love for us. So notice in Micah here that we discover the hope found in God's loving discipline. But this is a Christmas message and Micah tells us of the advent of the coming of that wonderful shepherd king. And we see that here in Micah 5. Turn with me from Micah 2 to Micah 5 as we see the context of Micah. Then we understand that in the midst of God's prediction of judgment for his people... He warns those in Samaria. He warns those in Judah. He wants to give them hope even in the face of disaster that is coming and hope in the midst of judgment that is coming. And then we read Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which reads, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel in the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me. One who is to be the ruler in Israel, who's coming forth, is from old, from ancient days. Verse 3, Micah 5, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Even if you've never read the book of Micah, if there's been a time in your life where you've read the gospel of Matthew, you have read Micah chapter 5. You remember the story, Herod the Great? Here's the news that a Messiah is coming. In his mind, an imposter to the throne. And Herod begins to ask, is the Magi show in Jerusalem? And they're looking for this Messiah. He asks the priests and he asks the teachers of the law, where, where is this Messiah to be born? And it's there in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5 that we read. You see it on the screen. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So there, the priests, those, the teachers of the law, are drawing upon Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah chapter 5, verse 4, to tell Herod the Great that there is a perfect king that is coming. And there is a day of hope that is coming to the nation of Israel right here. So in Micah's day, he offers a prophecy to say no matter what occurs for the nation, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, no matter what uh, what occurs for God's people, that ultimately God has a plan to restore them and to give them hope. And that plan is found in the very one who is predicted in Micah chapter 5. Notice the heritage of our hope. Notice that Micah tells us that this one who is coming to be the ruler of all, who is the one that is coming, is coming from a place called Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is familiar to us. If you've ever sat through a Christmas pageant, if you've ever sung any Christmas 
uh, carols. You might have drawn upon Phillips Brooks, that great 19th century preacher in Boston at Trinity Episcopal who wrote, Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem's familiar to us. But you know, in Micah's day, not so much. In Jesus' day, not so much. The book of Joshua has 115 towns and villages that Joshua gives as the allotment of the land of Judah. You know what doesn't even show up on, on the litany of the towns? You know what town doesn't even make the list? Guess what? Bethlehem. It was that small. It was that out of the way. It was that insignificant. Uh, in 115 towns and villages, Bethlehem doesn't make the list. And here God is saying, here God is saying that the one who is coming that is going to be the ruler of all of Israel, the one who is coming that gives hope to all the nations is going to come from this out of the way place. And it is just this wonderful reminder of how God just works in mysterious ways. He's always upending our expectations. If you, if you were to write the story of how the king of Israel is to come into this world, you've got to put him in Jerusalem, right? You've got to have him as a, a, a priest, as a father here. The, the better way to think about it is Zechariah's got to be his dad. Elizabeth has got to be his mother. But no, it's the opposite of that. He's born in Bethlehem to a penniless peasant by the name of Mary. An adoptive father by the name of Joseph, who is just a, a mere carpenter. It, it, this is not the place that you're going to shout from the rooftops, what has happened. It's just a reminder that this is how God works. He works in ways that are ultimately different than our expectations of how he should work. He did that then. He does it now. He did it in the Old Testament. You remember the story of King David coming to rule and Saul has, has lost his kingdom Jesse brings out his sons, and they're all big, strapping football players. I mean, you could fill the team of Jesse's sons. Samuel, the prophet, comes before, and he looks at the first son. No, that's not him. Looks at the second. No, that's not him. He goes down the line. None of them are here. And Jesse thought so little of his son, David. They didn't even invite him. You got any other sons, Jesse? And so the prophet Samuel is introduced to, to, the, to the smallest, most insignificant of Jesse's sons by the name of David. And so as he did it with David, so the line of David would be that that we know to be the king of Israel that is born in Bethlehem. And more than this, you want to see irony upon all of irony. 700 years before the coming of Jesus, Micah predicts that this son is going to be born in Bethlehem. And you know, Mary, she's not from Bethlehem. She's from Nazareth. Joseph, not there. The only reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem is because under the Roman government, there's a census, and for taxation purposes, they have to go back to the ancestral home of Joseph. So Micah, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, predicts this with crystal precision. This is how God works. Hundreds of years before, he could predict this. And so if he is trustworthy then, how much more so should we trust him now with the details of our life? Some of you in this room are wondering about the details of tomorrow. Some of you in this room are wondering, is God worthy of my trust? Is he worthy of me truly trusting him with the uncertainties of my life. And I'm here to tell you, if he got that right then, he can get your details right now. I assure you, your hope doesn't have to be in your circumstances. It doesn't have to be in your ingenuity and your intellect, but it can truly rest in the one who prophesied 
through Micah, the coming of. And notice the description. It isn't just the king that is prophesied. It is one who has, he has royal, royal credentials. The source of our hope in verse 3 of Micah chapter 5 is that there would be one who is born a ruler in Israel. You notice the words there in your copy of God's word? Who is coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In the original language of the Old Testament, we could translate that from days of eternity. Micah is prophesying that only one can bring hope in the midst of impending judgment for the people of God. That person has to be of divine origin. He has to have the credentials to be able to bring about a resurrection of God's people here. And and so it is, as John would say, that the one who comes was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that the plight of God's people could only be fixed, could only be solved by God himself through his Son. Have you seen that uh, AT&T commercial? It's got it's to be my favorite commercial that's going on right now. It's, it, they seem to play it all the time. So it's the story and commercial of a, uh, a couple. They're in the operating room, and the wife is talking to the nurse. And if you've seen the commercial, she asks for her husband, have you ever worked with Dr. Francis? And do you remember the way the nurse responds to it? Yeah, he's okay. And if you've seen the commercial... And Dr. Francis comes kind of strolling in the hallway, screams out down the hallway, guess who just got reinstated? Meanders into the room and he says, well, not officially yet. He asks the patient on the hospital bed, are you nervous? He says, oh yeah, of course I'm nervous. The doctor replies, yeah, me too. And he says, don't, don't worry about it, we'll, all, we'll, we'll just figure it out. And he walks out of the room. The tagline of his AT&T, just okay, is not okay. But I think it's helpful for us to understand as we're looking at Micah chapter 5 that, that Micah predicts a Savior who's not just okay, that, that he has royal credentials who ultimately is only qualified to do the work that only he can do. He, he is coming as a ruler. But when we think of ruler, we think of Hitler, we think of Mussolini, we think of tyrants, we we think of the Avengers, we think of Thanos and the Avengers, and he's gathering all these infinity stones to fill up his infinity gauntlet. That's what we think of when we think of rulers. We think of dictators. But notice in God's word, in Micah chapter 5, he's not talking about a ruler who's coming to subjugate his citizens But rather, verse 4, Micah 5, he is a shepherd who will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And you have to understand that in Micah's day and in Jesus' day, you could not have come up with two more polar opposite images to put together, a king and a shepherd. I mean, we understand this. I mean, you you don't have to live in 8th century B.C. to understand that a shepherd really is the opposite of a ruler. But when we're describing Jesus, he is the unique Shepherd king. A king cannot get bogged down in the affairs of the kingdom. I mean, we know this, right? If you've got a plumbing issue at your house, you don't need to call the king. That's just how it works. A king can't get bogged down in the everyday concerns of a citizen, but rather, in contrast, a shepherd, though. A shepherd in Jesus' day, a shepherd in Micah's day, lived with the sheep, 
was a protector to the sheep, was a provider for the sheep, was a physician for the sheep. You know what a shepherd was to the sheep? A shepherd was everything to the sheep. The flock couldn't do anything without the shepherd. The, the, the sheep needed the shepherd for every part of their life. And so here we have in the prophet Micah saying, there is a ruler who is coming, but he is not like any other king. He is the shepherd king. That's why John would draw upon this imagery in his gospel in the 10th chapter, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Do, do you know this? Do you know this about your shepherd? Do you know that as a child of God, that your joys and your jealousies, he knows that your habits and your hangups, that he knows and you're loved by him, that your disappointments and your despair, he knows intimately that you are known by this holy, unique king that was prophesied 800 years before his coming here. Now you say, how can I be sure about this? How can I be sure that he really knows me and he really cares for me? Words don't mean much. People talk about love all the time. There are eighth graders who pledge their undying love to their girlfriends at bowling alleys every Friday night. (laughs) You know? I mean, it's easy to say, I love you. I want to know you better. I mean, those, those words are cheap. I mean, we love... We love uh, our, our meal on Friday night. We love Alabama and Auburn football. We, I mean, we love a lot of things. We love our spouse. We love our children. So what is love? I mean, it's, it's just this word that we throw around at times. So we, we need something concrete. And here we know that we're loved. Here we know that we are loved and known because the unique shepherd king ultimately comes and he lays down his life for his flock. I'm the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for his own sheep. So here Micah, 700 years before Christ, would say to God's chosen people, do not lose hope. You are loved, even in the midst of the discipline of God, the judgment of God. I am going to send a a shepherd king who is going to restore the hopes of the entire nation of God's chosen people who are brought out of Egypt. And ultimately, we who have been brought into that family, Michael could not see this. He saw all of this through a veil. But we, 2,000 years after that first Christmas day, were able to look back and we see. We see why he came. Because we like God's chosen people. We've got a problem. You see, it's easy for us to read this Old Testament prophet and say, look at all the bad things that Israel and Judah did. But who in this room, who in this sanctuary wants to go into God's court and say, hey, God, look over all of my thoughts. They're morally pure. Oh, God, you got the film? Rewind all of my life. See if you can find anything wrong that I've ever done. None of us in this room. None of us in this room are innocent. None of us in this room are morally pure. We all stand before a holy God with sin on our hands that we have consciously chosen and we have done and we have lived under and we have longed for. We all are sinners who fall short of the glory of God and we need someone to rescue us from our sinful condition. Here's the good news. 
Here's the good news that Micah saw and he predicted, and here's the good news that I stand before you to share with you as we are guilty as charged. The Christmas good news is is that God would send a solution in this shepherd king to redeem each and every one of us who would trust in his finished work. So in the midst of your sinful condition, in the midst of my sinful condition, if we turn to him, so we have one who will wipe us as white as snow. So here's Christmas news. Jesus is a king like none other. Here's the good news of Advent. He is a king who would lay down his life to bring his citizens into his palace to dwell with him eternally. He's the shepherd king who knows his own. He is a shepherd king who would die for each who would trust in his finished work. This, my friends, is hope for today. This, my friends, is hope for all of our tomorrows. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning saying thank you. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of our problem, of our sin that alienates us, that separates us from you, a holy God, so you would send a solution in the form of the shepherd king, the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but knows us intimately, who as a shepherd never before has done would die for his flock, to bring us into a palace, a very place that you have gone to prepare for us. And if you've gone to prepare a place for us, we can trust that you will come back to take us where you have been. So there is so much, un- there, there, there's so much uncertainty before all of us that are here in this very sanctuary, but this we know for sure, that if we are a follower of you, our destination is secure. So Lord, we are grateful. And I pray for any person today that doesn't know this security, that even today they would turn from their self and trust in you as their Savior. I pray for all of us who are followers of you but need to be reminded of this wonderful Advent truth that today would be the day that we, anew and afresh, would thank you for just what you have done in the sending of your Son and our Savior. We pray this in his name, the strong name of Jesus. Amen.